Amen. The Old Testament book of Job is equally troubling and encouraging to me. If you're not familiar with the book, it's a book that's all about faith in the face of trials, hardships, and suffering. It's a book that forces you to ask the hard questions. Why did this happen? How am I supposed to respond to this? If God is good and in control and loving, then, then, then how did this happen? And so with even just a few of those questions, you can begin to see how this book would be both troubling and encouraging. But I do believe it's a lighthouse for us. I, I think it, it contains a, a wisdom that can help us acknowledge the dual reality that God is both loving, good, sovereign, and in control, and we can worship him amidst a fallen and broken world. See, I believe the book of Job can help us learn, cultivate, and develop the spiritual practice of lament. And I believe that the spiritual practice of lament, of, lament, of mourning before the Lord, I think this is a lost discipline for the church. And, and when this discipline is missing, when, when, this, when this is not there, we've lost the language of despair. Uh, one theologian said that when this is absent from the church, we rob from one another the language of disorientation. That happens, right? Like when the death happens, uh, maybe when the, when, the, when the relationship ends, when the job is lost, when the sickness is revealed, there's that moment where the, the, the only thing you know is, is pain, right? The only thing you know is your grief, is your sadness, and, and maybe the emotional fog that you're walking through. What am I supposed to do next? How am I supposed to respond here? Uh, you know, what's, what's my faith asking of me in this moment? You know, it's, it's so, we're disoriented as to what's happening because those are times in life where we have more questions than we have answers. And so those are the times where, where we have more questions than we have answers. And if we don't know how to express that to the Lord, if we don't know that we can express that to the Lord, then I think we, we rob from ourselves uh, the, this language of despair. And I think we lose sight of the fact that God is still present, that he is still in control, and that, yes, he is still loving you see, I believe learning to properly mourn and properly lament, and I know that's a weird phrase, to, to, to how to do this right. I'm going to get to that in a little bit. But I think learning to properly mourn, learning to properly lament before the Lord can help us deepen one's faith, even in the midst of a trial, even in the midst of a heartache. So this morning, it is all about mourning. And yes, I see the word play. So this, I had to do it, had to do it. So all about mourning and to lighten it up a little bit because I don't want this to be all emo, all right? I don't want this to be overly dramatic. I don't want us to go there because you can, right? I mean, you can quickly get there very, very fast. And so what I'm wanting this morning to happen, I want it to be incredibly practical. I want it to be um, something like a handhold that you can grab onto, an anchor that you can uh, grab. Because when we have those times of grief, when we have those times of mourning, it's, it's despair. We're disoriented. We don't know what, what's going to, you know, how, how to respond, how to, how to reply to it. And so uh, at the end of the sermon today, I'm going to give you something that I think can, can help you uh, voice your prayers. That, that is, and, and, and I don't want it to be formulaic. Like, you have to do it this way, otherwise God's not going to hear your prayers. That's not my aim. Uh, sometimes we just need to express our grief before the Lord. But I do believe that, that what we're going to look at this morning um, can, can help us express that lament, can help us express that grief before the Lord in a way that doesn't stir bitterness, in a way that doesn't stir pessimism or cynicism, but actually we can express it in a way that takes us deeper into our trust of the Lord, deeper into his love, into his goodness, and into his power. And so that's my aim for us as we talk about the spiritual practice of lament. 
Now, how I want to get us there is we're going to look at really kind of a summary of Job and his experience throughout the book of Job, and then we're going to take that and we're going to apply it to some of the, the psalms of lament that we have in Scripture. So that gives you a roadmap for where we're headed this morning, and, uh, and so that's the plan. Y'all good with it? I hope so. If not, you're stuck. Uh, so go to Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1. In, Job, in the opening chapter, we see that uh, Job is one who loves the Lord. He is devoted to him. Uh, and in fact, he, he fears the Lord, so much so that Satan has a question. Satan, Satan believes, or I guess not Satan has a question, Satan believes that Job only loves the Lord because it's going well for him. And he has this hypothesis, if you will, that if it goes bad for Job, he's going to reject his faith in God. And so what we come into in the opening chapter of Job is actually a conversation between the Lord and Satan concerning the faith of Job. Look at it. Chapter 1, verse 9. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power. But on the man himself, do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So you can, you can hear Satan's, again, Satan's hypothesis. He's trying to reveal the false faith of Job. And when it goes bad for him, he's going to curse the Lord. And so let me find out. And in probably the most troubling aspect of this book, God says, sure. God allows Satan to go find out. And let me just say, that's hard. Can I say that? Pastor, church guy, preacher, that's hard to reconcile, that action. That, that God looks and says, yes, have at him. And, and let Satan go and, and, and do this. That's just a hard thing that we see in Scripture. Yet at the same time, we have to do work with this text and see that what, what, what were some other aspects of God that we see in and through this action of God, this statement of God, uh, allowing Satan to do this. And I would say that already puts us on, uh, on the trajectory there. Because in allowing Satan to, to test Job in this way, God does put limits on what Satan can and can't do and the actions that he can and cannot take. So even in this conversation where God is allowing Satan uh, to come against Job, uh, we need to be mindful that God is still in complete control. He's still sovereign over all. He, he, even in the midst of, of this and allowing this to happen, God is in control of what is taking place. But we also need to remember what we looked at last week in our community groups. We talked about how God's ways are higher than our ways. How, how, how we can't always see his wisdom. We can't always see his plan. We can't always see what he is accomplishing in our lives, even in the midst of our suffering. For instance, here, Job will have no understanding that this conversation between the Lord and Satan has even taken place. He will have no understanding that, that, that actually God is trusting Job to, to be an integral part in God's plan to defeat Satan. You know, in, in, in this interaction, to, to show that Satan is wrong, to show that he is, that, that, that he is wrong with this, with this belief or trying to reveal this false faith. Job will have no knowledge that, that God is, is trusting him in this, in this action and using Job to be a critical part in, in showing that, no, there are people that will love the Lord because he is the one true God who is in control, who is sovereign, who is loving, not just because everything is going well for them in life. And so Job will have no knowledge of that when he walks through this season of testing. And it is a brutal season of testing. 
Because from here, Satan goes out and, and begins the test of Job. The first thing that happens, this war party from, a foreign, from another people group comes in and attacks his farmlands, kills all of his, all of his servants, and takes uh, all of his camel and, or takes all of his donkeys and all of his oxen on the first one. Then fire strikes uh, another part of his land and it kills all the sheep. And then another war party from another people group, so it seems like they're all getting along well, another war party uh, comes and, uh, and what do they get? They get the camels. So on the third raid, it's camels that are taken away from Job. And then he gets the, tra- he gets the news of the tragedy of all tragedies. All of his children are, are meeting and feasting in his oldest son's house. And a natural disaster strikes the house and it falls down and it kills all of his sons and all of his daughters. And he gets these reports one after the other. The first one comes in and says, hey, we've been attacked. All your donkey and, and, and cattle have been, have been stolen. Hey, all of our sheep have burned up. Hey, you know, all the camels have been stolen. And then the last one comes in, all of your children have just been killed. One after another. The first person is speaking, the next one walks in. And so in one afternoon, Job's world just completely comes crashing down around him. Can you imagine the season of despair, the season of, of just dis, how disoriented he has to be in this moment. What is happening? What is going on around me? How has this taken place? You know, he, how helpless does he have to feel in this? Like, I can't go back and undo anything. I can't, I can't fix it all. It's just one blow after another. He can't write it. He can't happen to it. It's just something that is happening that he's having to weather. And how does Job respond? How does he respond to to this news, to his world coming down around him? Look at verse 20. At this, Job got up, tore his robe, and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Job responds in grief. And mourning and worship. And I would submit to you that it is all bundled up together. His worship is his lament and grief and mourning before the Lord. And we see some really strong, incredible statements of worship. You know, and, and that, you know, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. He is at this moment, he is he is revealing that he does believe God is in control, even in the midst of seeing all this fall apart around him. So he believes that God is still sovereign. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. So we see that statement of faith from him. He also says, may the name of the Lord be praised. And I, like this one is just incredible to me that he could say this. Because in this moment, he's still recognizing the worthiness of God to be praised. He's recognizing that God is worthy to be praised is not dependent upon the circumstances that Job is walking through. Not dependent on the life situation that he is, that he is facing. That God is still worthy to be praised. And that's just like... I don't know how he says it. I mean, it's just, that's an incredibly hard statement, hard reality for him to get there and still say, no, God is worthy to be praised even in this. Let me say, I don't know how he says that in an honest, uh, it's not even a word, but I'm using it like an unpatronizing way. I, I do think kind of the deep south cultural Christianity, there can be this, hey, you got a slap of fake faith on us, like, I'm just praising the Lord even though all this has happened. And, and, and it's like, okay, well, no, how, do we, how, do we, how do we say that and mean it? How do we say that? And it'd be a, 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 a declaration of praise from like our inmost 
being when all that's rattling around. And in Job, we see, may the name of the Lord be praised. He makes a statement of belief in the authority of God, the sovereignty of God, even in the midst of chaos, despair, and complete disorientation. And in all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. I think it's important for us to know that Job doesn't leave this moment like tiptoeing through the tulips. You know, he's not like, hey, everything's fine. No, his, his life, wrecked. Wrecked. Like, pain is his reality in this moment. And it's going to get even worse because Satan comes back again with more trials and more afflictions. This time it's physical hardship, physical ailments that, that, that he's going to have to walk through. And yet all the while, while he's experiencing that pain and suffering, he still remains faithful to the Lord, even when his wife is saying, why don't you just curse God and die? Even while some of those closest to him are, are, are giving him bad counsel, he's still maintaining his steadfast faithfulness, devotion in the Lord. But he's still got his questions. He still has his questions. Why is this happening? Why is this happening to me and in, and in this manner? And so he, he's wanting to ask these questions before the, the Lord. And he has three friends who show up, who try to help. And, uh, and let's, let's assume the best of the friends and say they're there to really try to help because they give some really bad advice. <laughs> uh, they show up and they say, hey, Job, this is happening because of you. Uh, there's sin in your life. And because that sin was in your life, your children died as a result of it. I mean, how encouraging would that be in that moment, right? And so they, like, they, they, give, they give that advice to Job. And Job's like, no, I know that's not true. Uh, I'm not perfect, but there's nothing in my life that I haven't confessed to the Lord, that I haven't repented of. I know this is not happening in response to sin. I know God is not judging, uh, judging me in this way by bringing this type of, of devastation into my life. And so I know I'm innocent in that regard, but yet he still is wondering, why is this happening? He still has his questions. And we see uh, that even in wanting to ask these questions of the Lord, Job also keeps coming back to the bigness of God, how God is so other, how God is so um, transcendent, if you will, uh, that, that even if he could ask his questions before God, he would still be just a man asking questions of God, trying to hold God accountable to the standards of man. And so in Job chapter 9, verse 14 through 16, you can hear Job's frustration with that when he says this, how then can I dispute with him? How can I find words to argue with him? Though I were innocent, I could not answer him. I could only plead with my judge for mercy. Even if I summoned him and he responded, I do not believe he would give me a hearing. Then Job continues in verse 32. He is not a mere mortal like me that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. If only there were someone to mediate between us. Hold on to that. Remember that for later. If only there were someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more. Then I would speak up without fear of him. But as it now stands with me, I cannot. So at, at this point, Job has proper perspective about how big God is, about, uh, the, about um, his, his sovereignty, his authority, his, his you know, transcendent, just big, eternal God. Yet at the same time, through all of it, you can even hear it in the text we just read, he still has this desire to ask these questions of the Lord. And it, it begins to... It begins to trend to ask these questions in almost a confrontational manner. In fact, in the conversation that he has with his friends, and, and the conversation, let me say this, the conversation he has with his friends, that compiles, that, that makes up pretty much the majority of the book of Job. It's just kind of a, a back and forth that he has with his friends. And in one of the conversations that he has in chapters 23 and 24, Job does fire off these questions. He asks him of the Lord, he asks him of his friends, and it's all these questions about why is Job suffering, so it's his personal suffering, but also just 
the injustices that he sees in the world? Why do the, the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? He's asking those types of questions before the Lord. And, and through it all, as he fires off question after question after question, you can begin to hear the despair of a man who's lost everything. You can hear the grief of a father who's lost his family. You can hear, you can hear the pain. You can hear the hurt. And, and I think you can start to hear the accusation going from questioning to kind of accusation of the Lord. I, I, I don't think he gets full-blown accusatory of God um, because he, he's, he's going to maintain his faith in the Lord. But you can just, you can just, it just seems like it's starting to waver, like it's starting to go a little bit. There's still trust in the Lord, but man, there's frustration and there's angst. And, there, and, and it just starts to be this, this sense of, of, of grumbling and, and complaining to where maybe his questions aren't going to the Lord, but he's kind of, it's like gossiping about God to other people, right? And so, and, and to, to his friends. And so it's, it starts to start to drift just a little bit. It starts to waver in a little bit of some of this bitterness and cynicism. And it's there where now the Lord, uh, the Lord responds to Job. And it's a response that is, uh, it's, it's a pretty firm rebuke. Um, and it comes in chapter 38. Chapter 38, verses 1 through 5, it's just the start of God's response to Job. And this is some of the most um, <laughs> powerful, um, forthright, and just uh, really just terrifying words that I, I think God could speak to Job. Because I just try to put myself in Job's situation and hearing this from the Lord. The Lord says this, Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, Who's this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Here it comes. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. So, I mean, you can hear it, right? Like, like God's like, you question me, I'm going to question you, and you answer what I have to say. And, and the first two questions that God gives him are speaking to, hey, I formed this world. I made it. Where were you? Like, you know, like, I'm that big. Like, I have that much control, that much power. I brought universe into being. And God goes on four chapters, 38, 39, 40, and 41, question after question after question. And it's actually, it's a, it's a beautiful read because it's another uh, description of the creation account, really. And, uh, but through it all, God is reminding Job uh, again uh, about the grandeur and the might of God. And it is also important to note that over the course of four chapters, that at no point does God ever reveal to Job the reason for his suffering. Over four chapters, at no point does God say, hey, Job, I was using you as a critical part to beat Satan. Like, that, that, that's not there. At, at no point does he say, hey, Job, you don't understand it, but, but generation after generation after generation is going to read your story, and they're going to be encouraged in their grief and in their suffering and in their seed as well. At no point is that explanation in any of it. But over four chapters, God just shows and reminds and reiterates how big he is and in how and how much control he has because job again with the with the situation he doesn't just because job doesn't understand that doesn't mean it's not true because remember the disorienting disorienting nature of our grief and of our pain because when those moments strike right we, we can't tell what's up from down what's right from wrong what's just from unjust and so god is just helping job once again come back to the faith that he already expressed in chapter one Come back, come back to that faith of his trust and resolve and the goodness and the bigness and the might of God. And we see Job's response in chapter 42, chapter 42, verse 1 through 6. I want you to see this. 
It's Job's response of humility, and it's really a confession of trust once again. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I, do not under- I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job says, I remember, God. I remember how big you are. I remember your might. I remember your wisdom. I spoke of things I did not understand. I made an accusation uh, without knowing all the things that you know, God. And now I've experienced you firsthand. I see your power, your wisdom, and I see my failings. I despise myself. I repent in dust and ashes. It's as as if Job is saying, I'm I'm embarrassed by my accusation of you. uh, Because who am I to accuse you of anything? I repent grieve of his sin, grieve of these, of these expressions, really kind of of his pride. And, and that's, that's the end of the conversation, of the back and forth between Job and his friends and between Job and, and the Lord. But it's not the end of the story, because if you were to keep reading, there's, there's an epilogue at the end of 42. And we see um, that the Lord uh, does return to Job, all and then some, that Satan had taken from him. And we also see that, that Job has more children and lives long enough uh, to, to know and be and experience four generations of, grandch- of grandchildren. We even see that God forgives those friends who are given the really bad advice. And so uh, at, at every turn, you can see there is a lift, right? There's, there's, um, there is a happy ending, if you will, to, the, to this frustration and the trial and the hardship of Job. That doesn't make everything go away. That, that, that doesn't make those seasons of difficulty, those seasons of struggle um, disappear or anything like that. But it, is, it, shows, um, it shows that there is victory at the end, that there is joy at the end. And I think uh, this experience and this being, being a part of Job's story, I do think that is a uh, preview for us, if you will, that even though we're in this world and we see brokenness and suffering and, and hardship all around and we experience that in our lives as well, Remember a core doctrine of our faith. We believe that because of our faith in Christ, we're adopted in the family of God, that we will be with God in his kingdom where there's no more pain, no more hardship, no more suffering. We'll experience all the blessings uh, of being a part of the family of God. Rich said it earlier, it's an inheritance that will not perish or fade, right? That's the hope that we have. And so I even think like this at the end of Job's story points us to that hope that we have. And so that's why, again, I, Job's story, it's, it's, in, it's encouraging to me for, for those aspects. But, I mean, it's troubling to me as well. I already hit one part of why it's troubling. But I think an, another reason why Job's story had, has been, has been, had been, it's past tense now, had, had been uh, troubling to me, um, was that I had previously taken it to mean that I can't question God. I'd previously taken it to mean that I can't quite, that it's sinful for me to question God. Because there's a whole, brace yourself like a man, I will question you and you will answer me. I'd taken that, that sentence and thought, well, well, I can't question God because I don't want God to say that to me, right? Like, I don't want to be in, in that situation. So I thought it, it was wrong for me to question God. I didn't kind of do the work of thinking, well, maybe Job was off in how he was asking. Maybe Job was, was off a little bit in, in some of the motives or reasons for why he was asking these questions of the Lord. So I took it as it's wrong to always question God. And hear me, church, when that is our errant belief, when that is our errant belief, we rob from ourselves 
the language and the practice of lament. Because we intuitively know it. Our grief and our questions go hand in hand. Our grief and our questions go hand in hand. And so, so we need to come back and say, okay, okay let's, let's do the, can we really ask these questions of the Lord? Or is this just Hederman's opinion? And if we can ask them, how do we ask them? And I think Job continues to teach us because there's some things that he does right and there's some things that I, that I think he does that he's wrong and a few others as well. Again, he does have the proper perspective that God is big, that he is eternal, that he's transcendent, that he's almighty, powerful, and sovereign. So, so kind of, you know, how can we dispute him, right? Like how could he even, um, uh, who are we to hold him to the, our standards, right? But at the same time, Job's line of questioning uh, re- reveals that he's maybe believing uh, that God is distant from his suffering that God is so big that he's impersonal. So what we see in this is Job doesn't know or forgets about the imminence of God. And that's a little bit of a, of a, of a, a bigger term. It's a theological term, but yeah, we can, we can learn it, right? It's the imminence of what we mean by the imminence of God is that God is, is personable to his creation, to you and me. That God is personable to those who he's created in his image, yet all the while he remains definitively God. Um, so he's not detached, he's not removed, he's not distant, he is personable to you and to me. Perhaps the greatest example of this is Christ, right? He's God in the flesh. He came and walked among creation and did so in a way to, to, to help us relate uh, to the one true God. It's in the New Testament book of Hebrews where the writer is actually describing the ministry of Jesus and he describes him as a high priest, as one who mediates between God and man. Remember, this is the thing I told you to hold on to. Um, it, he's actually uh, pointing to how Jesus is what Job was asking for in verse 9, in, in, chapter, in Job chapter 9. But in Hebrews 4, 15 through 16, he says this about Christ. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So we see, through Christ, we can approach the throne. We can approach the throne of God, and, and we, with our lament and with our mourning, we can go before him and there find grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. And so the, the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, says we can go and, and, and put this before the Lord. Once more, the life of Jesus also lets us know that God knows the experience of suffering and mourning and heartache. Because Christ had numerous occasions where he walked through all of that, where he had those experiences as well. First and foremost there would be Christ on the cross, where he's making that sacrifice for our sins to be given to him, for, uh, for forgiveness to be given to us, and salvation come to our life. But what does he say when he's on the cross? One of the, one of the statements that he makes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In his pain, he asks a question. In his grief, he asks a question of the Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, if you're with us on Eastern, you know that that statement is not just a statement isolated by itself, that that's, a, that's the first line of Psalm 22, and it's how Psalm 22 would have been known, is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So while Christ is on the cross, he's helping us connect back to Psalm 22, which is a psalm that's classified two different ways. It's a messianic psalm, which speaks to a prophecy about the Messiah, and if you read Psalm 22, it is a blow-by-blow description of the crucifixion. So Jesus, as he's being crucified, points back to Psalm 22. But Psalm 22 is also classified as a psalm of lament. 
Bible scholars and historians say between one-third and one-half of all the Psalms, between one-third one and one-half of all the Psalms are Psalms of lament. Can I say that again? That God choosing to give us this, his word, the Psalms, he sees fit to between one-third and one-half of the Psalms be considered psalms of lament, and they are full of questions asked of the Lord concerning his absence or wrestling with his love, with his loyalty, with his goodness. Like Here's just a partial list of some of these questions that you can see in these psalms of lament. Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? Has, has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Tears have been my food day and night. There's the emo one. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. I mean, you hear it, right? It's question after question after question given to the Lord, being expressed of the Lord. Christ allows us to be able to approach the throne of grace and ask them. So yes, we can ask these questions of the Lord. So now we need to say, okay, if we can, then how? How do we ask these in a way? How do we ask these in a way to where we do this that's not grumbling or complaining or pessimism? How do we, how do we ask these questions in a way that doesn't spiral us towards accusation? Because grumbling, complaining, and accusation, that is one step away from just curse God and die. How do we ask these in a way that actually take us deeper into trust in who God is and the love that he has for us? And again, I think the, the, the Psalms of Lament help us. Because when you study them, there's a pattern that arises. And I've got it on the screen. I want you to take a picture of this, write them down however you want to, uh, to remember this. Do that. Because I think uh, this pattern can help, um, again, can help give language. There's a pattern that arises. And there's an opening address. There is uh, a time of complaint a confession of trust, a petition for help, and then a vow of praise. Now, again, I'm not trying to make your prayers formulaic because sometimes when you're walking through that grief, you just need to just, just cry out with your heart. I, I, I get that, all right? But at the same time, when we're walking through grief and everything is disoriented and we have so much despair to express, I think knowing this pattern can give your prayers a language that can cultivate a proper practice of lament that leads you away from cynicism, away from bitterness, and deeper into trust and love and goodness and provision of an almighty God. And, and, uh, like, and I think Job's life, actually, we can see elements of all, all this throughout Job's life. Job chapter 1, uh, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. There's, there's kind of that opening address. The tragedy happens, and he turns his attention to the Lord. It's worship of the Lord. That's, that's his first, okay, I'm coming back to you because I, I know I can trust in you. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And then there was that time of complaint. You know, he had those questions with his friends. Now, in his questioning, he started drifting the accusatory. He started drifting into, into the complaining a little bit. And there was that response from the Lord. There's that rebuke from the Lord that then led him to Job 42 to have that confession of trust. God, I, no plan of yours can be thwarted. I spoke w uh, words without knowledge of what you know, right? He came back and he had that confession of trust. Now, the back and forth between God and Job was over, but then we see God give him help in the epilogue in 42 when God uh, restores to Job everything that Satan had taken away. And then the book ends with praise for God and how much he's restored and blessed 
Job. And so you can see these different elements uh, laid out throughout Job's life. And so, I've, I, again, I think Job can help us uh, see uh, even the, the pattern, uh, the structure of the lament of phrase, of uh, the structure of lament in the Psalms. You can even see that through Job's life. But these are these are in the Psalms, and and uh, and so often you can just you can see different elements along the way, and some of them are more uh, expressed than others. Like uh, well, like Psalm twenty-two. We'll go back to that one. Um, you know, the opening address, my God, right? My God, my God. Like that's it. And some point, sometimes when you're in your grief, that's about all you can muster up. Like, I, I know, I know I can believe in you. I, I know you are here for me. You are my God. That's about all I got right now. Now, now, now I need to get to, compl- to the complaint. And so when you're making these prayers of lament, or when you're writing them down, or when you're going through this season of grief, like that opening address might be a statement that you make about God, that, but that might be a statement that's more with your intellect than with your heart and your, with your emotions. Because you might not have it in the moment, in that moment, right? Right. But it's still, it's God. I know who you are, and, and that's why I can come before your throne. Like that, that's that's an opening address. And yes, then there's a time of complaint. Put your questions before the Lord. If you're feeling it, give that to Him. Uh, and again, I had a conversation with someone in between services, and, and it, she helped me to see. I, I wanted to make this point better in the second one. How sometimes when we have those emotions in our life and we give them to everybody else, that's how we're, we're more gossiping about God than rather, hey, God says, give that to me. Like, let me have the question. If you're having this emotion, give that to me. And so that helps us not gossip, not complain. God, I'm going to trust you with this. So we give our time of complaint back unto the Lord. And then, and then to help it not spiral to accusation, to help it not spiral to bitterness and cynicism, we come back, okay, God, help me to make a confession of trust that you are good, that you are sovereign, that your ways truly are higher than my ways. Your wisdom is beyond my comprehension. And so, God, I know I can trust you in this, even if I can't see it, even if I can't understand it, because I'm speaking with words without knowledge. I don't know everything that you know, so God, help me. To, to, you can make that confession of trust. And then go for it, right? Petition for help. Ask. Ask. If it's healing, ask for healing. If it's a, a relationship that needs to be restored, ask for it. You can put that request before the Lord and, and ask him to work. Ask him to work in a mighty way. And then it ends with a vow of praise. God, I'm going to praise you regardless of how you work, regardless of how you move, because you are worthy of praise despite my personal circumstances. And again, I think that might be a statement that, is, that probably comes more from our intellect than from our heart and our emotion in that moment. And I know God calls us to, to, to love him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But I don't know about you, but there's sometimes in my life where, where my heart leads first and then my mind and strength and soul comes behind it, right? Sometimes we need our intellect to go first. Okay, I'm not feeling this in the moment, but I know God is good. I'm not feeling this in the moment, but I know God loves me. And so I'm going I'm to bank on that with my intellect. I'm going to hold on to that till my heart, my soul, my strength can align behind it. And, and what this practice does, what this language of lament does, is it helps us take that first step to where all that comes in line behind it gives you a language for the despair. It gives you a language for the disorientation. And again, helps us cultivate and practice this discipline of lament. And what you see in this, and you all talk about this in your groups this week, is, is ironic and is um, <laughs> unpleasant as it is. Sometimes that pain and that grief is another pathway towards trust. And pain and faithfulness are, are not mutually exclusive because lament amidst pain is actually another way where we demonstrate our hope and our trust 
and, and that we have in a good and loving God. Like I said, here's the deal, church. I, I hope you're in a season of good right now. Like, I hope it is all puppies and rainbows for you. Like, I just hope that is the case. But I know that's not always the case for us, right? There's times we have grief. There are times where we have uh, seasons of heartache. And look, and, and maybe for you it's not a season. Maybe it just seems like lament is just the soundtrack of your life. And if that's you, if that's what you're walking through, I, I'm hoping that this morning can, can just help you find a way to express that in a way that deepens your faith, that deepens your trust in who he is, and the, the goodness that he has and the love that he has for you and your people. It is a way that we learn to articulate the spiritual blues. So where we give that to the Lord, trust in him, and let it take us deeper into his goodness and away from bitterness and pessimism. It's learning, practicing, cultivating the language of lament. Let me pray for us. God, we love you. We thank you for uh, Job and, uh, and, and this... Uh, incredible life that was lived and uh and story of of what it looks like to wrestle with you and god i I thank you that you allow us to come before your throne that you made a way through christ for us to approach your throne in our times of need in our times of mourning and grief and lament and we can come before your throne and find mercy and grace to help us so god I, i pray that we uh know that we can do that that we can give our question our grief to you and god i pray that we do that well that we do that in a way that doesn't lead to, um, to sinfulness, that doesn't lead to uh, griping or complaining, but God leads us to places of trust in who you are and what you've done and in your goodness. God, we love you, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen.